We've just come up the pathway here in Drumcondra Churchyard and we're standing outside a grill, an enormous sort of iron cage over one of the tombs. It's a very eerie sort of setting all round. If anyone's looking over the wall, they'll wonder what on earth's going on. It's cold, it's damp, it's miserable. But why is the tomb covered over? Because on many a damp, cold, miserable night, 160 years ago, somebody might well have tried to break into this tomb, remove the body, bring it to a dissecting room and collect maybe seven or eight pounds, or here in Dublin, maybe a much smaller sum of money for his night's trouble. The body snatchers were the men who supplied the anatomy schools. Nowadays, we're so used to people saying, leave your bodies for science, leave your organs to help somebody else. We don't think much about being dissected. But up to the beginning of the, well, the beginning of last century, people were horrified at the thought of their bodies being desecrated as they would have seen it. And yet the medical students, according to the law, had to be able to know where all the bits and pieces were. Wasn't much good having a surgeon operating on you if he had to be looking at a textbook and sort of saying the knee bone is connected to the thigh bone, I think, and then going and cutting something off. Now, the very law which required them to have this knowledge stopped them getting it because only four to five bodies a year were available in this country, another four or five in England, and the same sort of number in Scotland, for all the medical students and medical schools. So they just had to go out and dig up bodies to be able to satisfy the needs of the anatomy teachers. And there are an awful lot of stories about it. I think everybody's heard of Burke and Hare in Scotland, but they weren't body snatchers. They never did an honest night's digging in their lives. They were murderers, pure and simple. As somebody said, they got a good job, a very bad name. Well, no, whether it was a good job digging up bodies or not is open to discussion. But there were all sorts of ways of trying to uh, circumvent the body snatchers. People would stand guard over a tomb for three or four weeks, maybe. And then, according to Robert Southey, the poet, for then I think that I may stink enough to rest in my grave. Other people had various traps, and there was a man in Dundee who let it be known that he had planted a landmine in his child's grave. Now, that may or may not have been a try-on, but no body snatcher was going to risk his own premature dissection at very high speed. Here in Dublin, we've a big number of stories about body snatching, and looking through the journals, the newspapers of the time, particularly Saunders' newsletter, we get lots of stories about body snatching. And it's very noticeable that these roughly are 
from September to about the end of March, maybe beginning of April. Why? There were several reasons. First of all, these were the dissecting terms in the colleges. Secondly, the nights were long, which meant that you could dig in relative comfort and peace. Thirdly, the nights were very cold, as we found out for ourselves tonight, and that meant that the body would not decompose so easily. The ideal thing was to get the body within a few days of burial, and many of the church wardens, the grave diggers, the vergers, possibly even some of the clergy, would tip off the body snatchers when there was going to be a funeral. And in one part of England, the uh, grave digger was known as the Jack of, Na uh, Jack of Spades, because he would dig, and then his knight was called the Jack of Knaves, because he'd then dig them up again after planting them. Another, one of the tricks that the body snatchers, and particularly the grave diggers, used was if it was a pauper's funeral with possibly nobody there at all. They would put ropes around the body as it was lowered into the grave. There wouldn't be a coffin, just a shroud or winding sheet. And with every few uh, spadefuls of earth, they would drag the body up a little bit nearer the surface. And eventually it would be covered just by sods, that nice 20 minutes work, and you'd be well on your way with a nice, fine, fresh specimen that you could hawk to the nearest professor of anatomy. There was one Dublin body snatcher, though, I think he really takes the, the biscuit for coolness and callousness. His mother died, there was a wake, she was buried, and he was apprehended the next night, digging her up again. And he said, ah, sure, no, a tenderer hand couldn't go over her than me own. And sure, she was dead. Sure, why would she want not for me not to have the few bob? has to say that. They could be beaten up by relatives, they could be apprehended by the watch, they could be shot by other body snatchers, and both in this country and in England there are some very gruesome stories. Now, down in Devonshire, there was a fellow operating, obviously an Irishman, his name was Murphy, and I think he'd made things too hot for himself in London, not so much with the police as with rival body snatchers. Anyhow, he hired himself off to the West Country, and he was a good operator. I mean, he knew what he was about, because for his first few days there, now, he would go to church, and he'd look around and sort of sum up what sort of people were there, were there any of them likely to be ending up in the graveyard? And he was a specialist. He specialised in hair and teeth. Now, in those days, human hair was used for making wigs. And this chap, Murphy, he would watch and look at some lady there who had a good head of hair, and he sort of tried to sum her up. And teeth were a great uh, line of commerce. There was one man who helped one of the famous London surgeons 
and he went all around the battlefield of Waterloo, tearing out the teeth from dead and sometimes not so dead soldiers who couldn't resist him because they were badly wounded. He got back to London and he had, they estimated, about 600 pounds worth of teeth on him. It was a huge sum in those days. <laughs> Weren't they hijacked by another body snatcher? And talk about gang warfare in Chicago. All hell broke loose. All the body snatchers went on strike. The medical schools were practically bereft of bodies. And it took a lot of arguing and a lot of folding money to get things back onto an even keel where everybody was satisfied. But our friend that went to Devonshire, he ended up very badly. He used to organize his raids in oh, nearly like a military operation. You'd be watching, you two dig, you two pull the body out, and he would sort of generally supervise. He wasn't going to dirty his hands too much. But one night, they were digging up, and they heard a late funeral coming along. Now, you may wonder why on earth a funeral would be after dark at about 10 o'clock at night. The answer was that there was an outbreak of cholera in the district, and there were maybe in a small village you'd get 10 deaths in a day. But anyhow, they heard this late funeral coming, and they jumped into a tomb to hide. This was the very tomb to which the funeral was coming. Now, we don't know what happened, but 15 years later, this tomb was opened again, and three skeletons in working clothes were found in it. And they, uh, they had propped up a coffin, I suppose to try and lever out the capstone of the tomb, and they had failed. Now, whether they decided to keep quiet and thought they could push their way out, whether they called out for help and people thought they were ghosts, or whether they said, oh, good enough for them, and left them there, we don't know. But they ended up very much on the wrong side of the tomb. Uh, here in Dublin, the two big operators for the export trade were Collins and Daly. And they, again, had things organised to a very, very fine pitch. Um, they could blackmail the College of Surgeons. They could say, we won't send you any more bodies unless you up the ante a bit. And they would have um, bodies on the dock sides, naked bodies lying on the dock side sometimes, waiting for a boat over to Liverpool. And the story of body snatching in Liverpool, well, there's a whole book in that, and the lost papers have been read about it. There was even about 50 bodies found hidden in the basement of a boy's school, run by a respectable clergyman who swore he knew nothing about it. He was probably telling the truth. But these uh, exports from Dublin, they'd go off in casks labelled salt herring, cheese, uh, limestone, all sorts of things like that. And they had a huge trade going, particularly uh, in Scotland, where there was very active medical schools, where the great anatomists were only too anxious to get bodies from anywhere, even though they must have suspected that Burke and Hare had not come by the bodies just by digging. In fact, they had murdered them. We still use the expression to burke a person which means to put a pillow over his face, sit on him, and when he stops struggling, bring him along to the dissecting room. 
Uh, what else is there now here? In this churchyard, there is this very fine, what we call, mort safe. And it's fairly unique in that the cross bars at the very top are still in place. Sometimes those were removed after a few months to make the thing look nicer and more ornamental. There are similar mort safes, several up and around Belfast, where, of course, there was again a thriving export trade over to Glasgow. Very often a trawler would slip across. It's, after all, only a couple of hours across, even in a sailing vessel, and they'd bring a few bodies over, which would end up in Glasgow or in Edinburgh. Uh, in Glasgow, there was one shipment, I think it was of six bodies, if I remember rightly, and these um, were deposited in a... Uh, depository of some sort, a left luggage office or something, and because the medical students couldn't raise the money for the rental, the owner said, well, you're not getting your package. But eventually he was only too glad to get rid of the package because it began to stink to high heaven, and the police were called, and they found out that these were bodies. Let's leave this smart safe here and we'll walk over. There's another thing I'd like to show you. Watch your footing there now because you know, there's the light for you. Oh, bloody hell, the, the light's gone out. Didn't break your leg or anything, did you? No, good. I don't want to have to carry you home. Now, there was another type of mort safe, and this was just a plain big slab of stone, weighing, maybe weighing two or three tons. And here, these slabs always seem to have been bought by the bereaved relatives and left. But in the West Country, again, around Taunton, I know that there was uh, a church that used to hire out these stones. They'd hired them to you, say, for six weeks or so, and by then the body would be useless. And a variation I saw of this was in Ringsend Church here in uh, Dublin, on the south side of the Liffey. We're up on the north side of the minute, of course. And there they buried a big slab about two feet under the surface with bolts sticking up. And then another slab was bolted to this. The bolts were bushed. Uh, well, nobody was going to try and dig that one up, which would have taken hours and heavy lifting equipment. And uh, wait now, I think there's, is there an open tomb grave there. Just be careful. You don't want to join this gentleman who died in 19... when? 1903. Ah, well, <laughs> he's not going to disturb us, I hope. And let's just see now. Here's another, another place up here. Now, this is a different type, possibly, of mort safe. Whether this is just ornamental or not is hard to tell, really. You can't make the date out. I think that this is purely ornamental because in most of these tombs, you will notice that the dates are oh, around about 18, say, 1820 up to 1832. Now, 1832 
was the cut-off date. Oh, the security light has come on here. They don't, they're afraid we'll do some body snatching, I suppose. Now, there's one of those big slabs there. Now, you wouldn't move that in a hurry. And you see, this one is flat down on the ground. And as I was saying there, the dates, they're 1832, uh, June 1832 was the cut-off period. Because then the Anatomy Act came into force, which regularised the supply of bodies for the medical schools. Now, in theory, it was a good idea. And the trouble was that now it was the bodies of paupers, of people who were buried at the expense of the state. They were dissected. So that the misery of being a pauper was compounded by the fact that you knew you'd probably be dissected after death. And many people had a great objection to this because, for a time, the only bodies that were available to students were those of criminals who'd been hanged and then dissected, so that there was a terrible stigma about dissection. And it was the unfortunate people, in the very much in the submerged 10th income group, who are now going to have the added indignity of being dissected. We've gradually got over that, but every now and again you get little flickers of this feeling and worry. Now, 1907, that was 70 years after the passage of the Act, uh, the people in the workhouse, the poor house down in Waterford, they were terribly agitated because there was a rumour going round that members, friends of theirs, had been dissected, simply because they were poor. And even as recently as 1950, I saw a reference in the report of some county council, I can't remember which at the minute, in which this same thing was happening, that the unfortunate people who were there were very worried that they wouldn't be buried decently. And you may say, well, what does it matter if you're dead? If you have an objection to it, you're entitled to your objection. And it'd be tough to think, hey, it's just because I'm poor, they're going to dissect me. Now, you see over here, you notice this um, steps leading down into the crypts. Now, I'm not sure about these ones, but certainly in other parts, in other graveyards, these steps were where the grave watchers used to stay, often with dogs with them, Doberman Pinchers or Alsatians or something like that. Yeah, we're walking now across the gravel, and you can look down there, and... I suppose if this is one of those sort of places, there's probably a fireplace there and they had a bit of meagre comfort. Now, up in Glasnevin, uh, not Glasnevin, in uh, Inchicore, up in uh, Golden Bridge Cemetery there, there is very definitely under the reception altar, there is a room built for the grave watchers. And, of course, that churchyard... Well, it's not a churchyard, strictly speaking. There is a reception altar there. And it. last time I visited it, it was revolting. The What had happened there, graffiti and the uh, place in a dreadful condition. The unfortunate caretaker just can't cope. 
in Glasnevin, which of course many people around Dublin certainly know the towers on the walls, those were put up to stop the body snatchers. And there's a story told about there that they had watchdogs. And in fact, down near where the crematorium is, is what's called the dog yard. To this day, it's known that as that. And the dogs were long past their useful days. It was long after the anatomy act, but they were kept on more or less as pets, I suppose. And one night, the medical officer was called to one of the men who was sick. The dogs must have smelt him as a doctor, realised this was what they were trained to attack. And the poor man, he was pinned up against a tombstone until they heard the, the dogs howling and barking, and the men rushed out and rescued him. Well, there were all sorts of hazards. Now, if we, um, again, uh, we can go up... Later on, we'll go up the mountains to where there's a very fine watchtower up near the Pine Forest. And from that, you'll get a view of most of North County... In fact, most of County Dublin. You can see up to the Mourne Mountains if things are right. And people were buried there up at Rockbrook. And the uh, watchtower was built for the watchers to make certain the body snatchers didn't get in. And around the country, in all sorts of small graveyards... Is that your bag there? You have it. Good man. Um, in all sorts of small graveyards, you'll find little stone houses with slit sort of windows, like you'd get in a military post. And you'd stick your blunderbuss out of these, and if you thought you saw somebody, you'd let fly. This happened in Glasnevin on a bitterly cold night, rather like tonight, I'm afraid, but there was snow on the ground, and the next morning there was bloodstains on the snow. Somebody was hit, but, of course, nobody ever found out who it was or that because he knew that if he was identified as a body snatcher, he was in deep trouble. Um, surprisingly, one sometimes finds traces of body snatching far away from the um, big medical schools. Now, this had probably two or three reasons for this. First of all, they were quiet. You could spend as long as you like there, nobody's going to spot you. And then you could bring the body back to Dublin or Belfast or somewhere. And often we find that these graveyards are not too far from water transport, the canals. And up along the Royal Canal, near Mullingar, there is a story about a family who were known as body snatchers, and they would probably wrap the bodies in straw or sacking or something, and they'd come down on barges into the city and either go to a Dublin medical school or be put onto the Liverpool boat as third-class passengers. Um, there's a little graveyard in um, Kill, outside Nace. Uh, it's, it's very hard to get to it now because it's the uh, M7 is pretty near it. But there, there is a little stone hut that was reputed to be used by the watchers. And down around Cork, there are several of these places we were able to identify them. Some of them are in poor condition, job for the local archaeological society to restore them because they're of very considerable interest. Um, up around Belfast, uh, even far inland from Belfast, one can come across these sort of uh, stone houses where people were 
just sat and watched and made certain nobody disturbed their relatives. It certainly was a very, quite a lucrative trade. The top price for bodies in London at one stage, somebody got a job loss of three for 42 pounds. Well, now 42 pounds in those days was more than many people earned in a year. And as I say, in Dublin, we could pick them up for 10 bob or so. Was that a ghost we heard behind us then? <laughs> I'll shine the torch on it and see if there are any eyes gleaming at us or anything like that. I always remember one night we were up not very far from this place in um, Rockbrook, up near the Pine Forest, and it was a wild, wet night, lashing rain, and we were coming down from the pub up there, the blue light, I'm sure some of the listeners will know it. And I had on long black oilskins, very loose oilskins. I came round a corner, just as the headlights of a car picked me out, and as the wind blew this, these oilskins out, and I must have looked like a bass. There was a poor devil coming up the road, and he was well under the weather, and he let a street It's Dracula! <laughs> and he tore down the road as fast as his wobbly legs would take him. I'm sure, you know, he leaped into bed and said, Oh, no, no, oh, Lord, don't let him get out. Oh, keep the window, oh, don't let him get out. I'm sure he stayed sober for quite a few days after that. And these sort of things must have often happened, you know, in these body-snatching um, episodes. There was one man in Abbey Leaks, which is a long way from a medical school, and this doctor used to give grinds in anatomy, and he would get a couple of students to help him, and they'd go out and dig up the odd body for their own use. The local police knew quite well what was going on, but I'm sure a few bob to the sergeant was enough to keep things quiet in those days, long, long ago. But, um, what he would do is he would uh, tie the corpse between himself and a student, put a big all-enveloping cloak over the three of them, and stagger home singing bawdy songs, pretending to be three drunks coming from a pub. And the same thing happened in Dublin. Medical students would do this. And they staggered up, particularly around the Camden Street area, going back to the College of Surgeons and the medical schools which were in Peter Street. And they would get away with it. Sometimes they'd dress the man up in old clothes and put him sitting up in a cart or something like that. And um, on one occasion, it was in uh, out near Baldonnell Airdrome there. They were, they were doing this and some fella thumbed a lift and sat up and put his hand down the cold body. He shot out of the cart like a rockus and was never seen again. There are all sorts of stories too about, now that one reminded me of up in uh, Sagart. The story there is that a medical student was shot on one occasion and that he was the son of the then president of the College of Surgeons. Now there are several versions of the story, but I think it must be true basically true. There must be uh, some truth in the matter. Maliki Horden remembers, you know, that book that um, George Little produced. Now, he spoke about body snatching in that area around Sagart 
uh, around the Slade in, in that area generally and that they would wrap cloths around the horses' hooves and oil the wheels well and that you'd hear this thing sort of clop clopping along but you'd think, God, it's a ghost and you weren't going to investigate it. The two of us will be ghosts if we don't get out of this cold churchyard. <laughs> <laughs> Well, now, we're coming up to another Mort safe here. It's slightly different to the one we were talking about at the beginning because the cross rails at the top are not there. Now, it, they may have been that they were there and have been removed just to make the thing look better, or maybe they were never there. But you can notice that the actual grave stone is set into the iron and if you look closely here you can see the date 24th of is it november but it's 1827 now that's significant because that's before the passage of the anatomy act so that undoubtedly is a protective device and you can see there are other ones in this graveyard too we were looking at but that's a good that's a pretty good example of that and I brought a friend from London up to see this. Uh, she's interested in body snatching, uh, purely as an academic pursuit. She doesn't go out <laughs> digging up bodies or anything. But uh, she was thrilled with these because she said they were amongst the best she'd seen. Now, they're very good ones in Edinburgh, too, in uh, Greyfriars Churchyard. Of course, I was born within, nearly within shouting distance of Greyfriars Churchyard, so maybe I... That is why I started my interest in these um, rather macabre sort of things. I'm sure people uh, listening in to us wondering why the two grown men are here in a graveyard in the middle of the night. <laughs> the wind is howling. Um, my feet are absolutely frozen. My hands are, feel like lumps of ice. My teeth are cha 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 chattering. Um, what what possesses you to be to come to do this kind of thing? It is a fascinating subject because there's an awful lot of social history in it. There, the whole question of the aversion to being dissected, which was quasi-religious in some cases, and then, of course, afterwards, the poor person was going to be dissected. And there were some people in the upper income groups who had some vision and who did offer their bodies, but they were daily regarded as eccentric in some way that anybody would think of allowing themselves to be cut up after death. But uh, I can't see your face because it's so dark, but yeah. uh, you see... Well, you're, uh, <laughs> you're From your voice, it seems to, to me as if it's the most natural thing for you in the world to be in the middle of a graveyard <laughs> in the middle of the night. Um, you know, what, what keeps you going? There were so many fascinating aspects of it, and you get stories in different parts of the country. Now, the curious thing, I came across almost the same story down in Waterford and up in County Louth of a body snatcher carrying a body home, strapped across his back as if it was carrying it piggyback, resting on a bridge and being toppled over the bridge by the weight of the uh, body and being killed. One was at um, Crook in County Waterford and he was bringing the body down to the harbour and it was going to be ferried across to the Wexford side where the car ferry now is that just flies between Wexford and Waterford. 
And the man on the Wexford side, the doctor over there, was well known as giving grinds in anatomy for students and things. The other was up just outside Drogheda, on the back road up to Clotherhead. Now, I think that that body snatcher was either going to some local surgeon who may have had an interest or was maybe going up to some small port where a trawler would take the body from him, ship it over to Scotland. But whatever happened, the body toppled him backwards and the arms across his throat actually choked him. And up to relatively recently, older people crossing this spot would uh, bless themselves and say a prayer for the poor man, uh, for the two of them, I suppose. There is a little graveyard near there which is very, very isolated, and I'm sure that's where the body was being taken from. But these days have gone now. Um, there was body snatching in America up to, certainly within my parents' time, sort of the 19, early 1900s, because the laws there were chaotic. Different states had different laws. Now, in Connecticut, you could dissect a body, provided it was not dug up in Connecticut. And in New Hampshire, the adjoining state, you could dissect a body, provided it wasn't dug up in New Hampshire. So the fellas from Connecticut went to Goswell Way, and they'd pass each other in the middle of the night with their bodies. It was an utterly lunatic law. I think the last case of body snatching in um, New York was in 1907, which was the year my parents were married in. So, I mean, it's not all that long ago. There must be people still living. And um, this chap, I think he got three months suspended sentence or something. But as far as we know, that was the last report. But every now and again, you get stories about uh, bodies disappearing from uh, mortuaries and things like that. And on Central America and South America, there have been quite a few peculiar stories in the last few years even and in Germany there is a blood bank and the um, man who operated it I think he's no longer in the job uh, claimed to be a descendant of Dracula of Vlad the Impaler which would be a very suitable job or especially if he felt he needed a cocktail before lunch he'd plenty of uh, plenty of subjects there Darkness falls across the land The midnight hour is close at hand Creatures crawl in search of blood To terrorize your neighborhood And whosoever shall be found Without the soul for getting down Must stand and face the hounds of hell And rot inside a corpse's shell Closing in to seal your doom. 
I'm sure people wouldn't have boasted that they were body snatchers, but uh, was it swept under the carpet? Oh, there were plenty of people who knew what was going on. Very often they were in the pay of the body snatchers, or they were terrorised into keeping quiet. Because if they uh, blew the gaff, body snatchers were tough men. And they'd think nothing about beating somebody up who, get, who grasped on them. Of course, there were also medical students who were body snatchers, and even professors of anatomy who would go on raids, possibly to get some particular body with a deformity or something like that. Giants were very much at risk. It sounds all very Machiavellian training for medical students. Well, they all had to do it. Otherwise, they, they couldn't do their dissections. They didn't know anything about their anatomy. Uh, we didn't have to do it, fortunately. But I suppose, had it been necessary, we would have. What could you do? You had to get specimens to dissect. I think, I'm sure people must find that a, a very repugnant idea. I suppose, like all jobs which are not very nice, is repugnant to somebody, but it's very necessary. And even though, as I say, the body snatchers were tough, uncouth characters, we have to hand it to them. They could work damned hard for their money and under great difficulties and under appalling conditions. I mean, we've been standing out here for 40 minutes and I think I'm dead up to the knees by now. <laughs> but imagine on a wet night digging in a mucky tomb, watching to make certain nobody attacks you with dogs or comes and takes a pot shot at you. They earn their money. The police, how did they react to it? Uh, well, of course, in those days, the police were very inefficient. They were what they called the Charlies. Now, these were mainly a sort of dad's army of retired soldiers. And the idea was that the Charlie would go around with his rather inefficient lantern. And if he saw something going on, he would twirl a rattle, like the sort of rattle over at a football match. And in theory, all the Charlies would come and help him. In practice, what they did was they leaped into the nearest cellar and hid there till the trouble was over. So they were no good at all. And uh, the story used to go around in London that um, the Charlies used to adjourn to a tavern. About eight of them all drinking together. One would say, we've got to do our rounds now. And he'd simply get up and walk around the table. Say, That's my rounds done. What are you having? I suppose one, even with such a serious subject as death and burial and everything like that, one does get the occasional bits of black humour. And there was a story I remember going round some time ago about this doctor who had a very, very demanding patient, you know, sort of one that always rings up just as that critical penalty has been taken or something. But eventually, like all good hypochondriacs, he died and was buried, and I won't say in what cemetery. And um, the doctor, oh, he was delighted with himself for a while, and then didn't he die very shortly afterwards? And he was buried beside his erstwhile patient. And I happened to know the caretaker of that cemetery, and he was talking to me, and he said, you know, you're not going to believe this. But he said, your friend, the doctor over there, I heard an awful noise around his tomb one night. I didn't know what it was, I thought it was vandals. And I went down and he said, honest to God, no, this is the truth I'm telling you. Honest to God it is. I nearly believed him. But he said, a gaunt arm came out of the tomb beside your friend and it banged on his tomb. And a deep sepulchral voice says, would you have anything that's good for worms? <laughs> I think that's terrible. 
Don't forget your shovel if you want to go to work. Oh, don't forget your shovel if you want to go to work. Oh, don't forget your shovel if you want to go to work. Nowadays, of course, people have no objection to being dissected within reason, and many people have volunteered to leave their bodies for research, for organ donation, or for straightforward dissection. And amongst people who had done that were two very good friends of my own. And I went to collect the papers from them one morning, and I only the lady of the house was in, and she came out to the door with me, and we were good friends, and she was linking me, but a neighbor saw my car outside and recognized it. She said, oh, she says, there's somebody sick. And out of the blue, this woman says, not at all, nobody's sick. I've just been giving my body to the doctor. 